this morning, or Matthew chapter 26, uh, I got to tell you, the gospel um, really gets dark. Uh, in fact, the uh, this is one of the the hardest sections. Uh, if if you're really paying attention, the hardest parts of the story. Uh, this is where uh, we see the beginning of his betrayal and his suffering, and and it's it's really important for us before we move into this chapter to consider what Jesus has been talking to the disciples about. Uh, the coming judgment on Jerusalem, the consummation of his kingdom, the judgment, the, uh, his return. All of those things are critical to understanding what he's about to go through. Um, we know that at least on three other occasions, Jesus has talked about being turned over to the, to the priests and the Gentiles and being executed. Um, the first time he said this, of course, with him. Right? Right on the heels of saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter says, okay, you know, I'm headed to Jerusalem where I'm going to be turned over and executed. And Peter says, no, you're not. Let's, let's pay attention to what you just said. Um, and, and Peter wasn't the only one. The rest of the disciples argued too. And the other couple of times that Jesus has mentioned that he was going to Jerusalem for this purpose, the disciples basically ignored him. They just, they kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. They didn't react. They didn't confirm. They didn't deny. They didn't do anything. They just ignored what Jesus had to say. This time, they're not going to be able to ignore what Jesus has to say because we are literally right on the doorstep of his prophecy. So we're starting in uh, chapter 26, verse 1. Um. The next couple of weeks are going to set us up for the Lord's Supper, uh, which is actually recorded for us in chapter 26, verse 26. So my plan, that's my plan, maybe not God's plan, my plan is for us to hit verse 26 on the, did I write down the date? No, I didn't. The first Sunday of Advent, which is not next week, but the week after. Yeah. What? Yeah, it's it's December 2nd. Um, that is going to be the first Sunday of Advent, uh, which will be when we hit verse 26, if everything works out correctly. Um, so this is what we're preparing for. This is what we're looking at. Uh, let's go ahead and stand for our reading today. We're going to read from verse 1 through verse 13. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, 
Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's pray. For this passage this morning and, and for the, the, the message we have in Jesus' words, and I ask that you would help us to understand the actions that we take as we obey you in what you've commanded us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, have a seat. I have to tell you, as I'm putting together my notes, okay, I was really struck by something, and it, it, it just it was one of those things that just, you know, the, the nerd genes just kind of percolated to the top, and I was completely 100% geeked out. And I thought I would share some of that with my bride, whose response was, um, so I'm going to share it with you guys in hopes that I get a little better reaction, okay? Before we get message, a couple of things that I want In all of the time that I have been teaching you guys, I've told you that one of the most important tools you have for the interpretation of Scripture is what? Context. Yay, they can be taught. All right. So, <laughs> context. We have literary context. What kind of book is it that we're reading? Is it a historical book like Genesis? Is it a didactic book, a teaching book like one of Paul's letters? Is it a book of poetry like Psalms or the Proverbs? Uh, is it a wisdom book like the Proverbs or the book of James? Is it a prophetic? book? Is it an apocalyptic book, which is a specific type of prophecy? These are all questions we have to ask in order to know how to interpret the book. Then we have to look at who the author was, who wrote the book, who, who wrote it. Uh, was it a nomadic uh, style from Egypt who was suddenly faced with the burning bush in the backside of the Midianite desert? So we have to take Moses' background into account. He was raised in the Egyptian court. He had a very high level of education. Uh, or was it written by the leader of the armies of Israel, Joshua? Right? There's, there's a difference between those people. If you look at the New Testament, you look at the difference between Paul's letters and Peter's letters. Paul was a high-educated Pharisee. Peter was a fisherman who apparently had his foot in his mouth the whole time he lived, right? So there's this is another piece of context. Where was it written? Was it written during the 40-year march that the Israelites were on as they were traveling that two-week distance between Egypt and the Promised Land, right? Two weeks took them 40 years. They were not using Google Maps. Maybe Apple Maps, not Google Maps. <laughs> Apple Maps version 1. Um, or was it written during the first century, some 14, 1500 years later in Palestine? Was it written to Gentiles? Was it written to Jews? Was it written with a Roman background? Was it written with a Greek background? These are all context questions. One of the other things that we have to set context wise 
is how far removed is it from what we've already looked at? How long has it been since this took place before that? We've got to know where it sits in the timeline. Matthew recorded the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in chapter 21. Okay? You remember that? Do you remember when we looked at that? Palm Sunday, April 8th, we covered the triumphal entry. I'm between Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and right here at the beginning of chapter 26 has been approximately two days. Chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23, 24, 25 have all taken place. This is where the nerd. It's like, holy cow! That's a lot of stuff in two days. If he entered Jerusalem on the first day of the week, called Sunday, with the the punches and the people Hosanna, morning on Sunday. Makes sense because Matthew doesn't tell us about a Sabbath in between the triumphal entry. Told to the tradition that his trial happened on Thursday night, sometime after sunset. That puts the crucifixion on Friday. That's why we call it Good Friday. Um, verse 2 of this chapter says there are two days between here where Jesus is talking and the Passover. So the Passover would have been on Wednesday, starting at sunset on Wednesday through sunset on Thursday by the Jewish calendar, right? So we got two days from Wednesday night. So back up two days. You have Tuesday night. You have Monday night. So if Jesus came into town Sunday morning, he is now saying this to the disciples Monday night. That's not a lot of time for a lot of stuff to have happened. If you think about all of the stuff that he has taught, um, part of the part of the emphasis. All right, verses one and two. Jesus says uh, first. Matthew says when Jesus had finished all these sayings, all these sayings refers to everything that he has said since he left the temple. And, and if you want to find out where that is, you go all the way back to uh, say verse. 37 of chapter 23. So that's that's really where he began his prophecy of the, the coming judgment on Jerusalem and the consummation of his kingdom. So when Matthew says when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he's talking about chapter 24 or chapter 25, which has taken us four months to go through, maybe three and a half. There's a lot of stuff in there, right? And then Jesus says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Why would Jesus say that? Well, look at the stuff he's been talking about in chapter 24, 25, right? He's, he's talking about the destruction of the temple. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's talking about the signs that will show that those things are coming. 
He's talking about the future judgment and with the parables that he taught about the lazy servant and about the the talents and about the, the, the ten virgins, the ones who are wise, the ones who are unwise. All of this stuff, Jesus says, we got two days before I'm going to be gone. So there's a measure of urgency in the message that Jesus has been sharing with the disciples. There's a, 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 a sense of, I've got to get this to you so you are prepared because there's coming a point where I'm not going to be able to teach you anymore. But then look what Matthew does in verse 3. I mean, we're, we're talking about driving down the highway in fifth gear and then just about slamming it in reverse when we hit verse 3 because he changes the story completely. He says, Then the priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Where did that come from? Now, I don't know about you, but me... When I think about the, the plot on the, the part of the priests and, and the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, I tend to think about this as being a conflict that has been simmering for a long time. But as I was, as I was together yesterday, number one, where has Jesus done almost all of his ministry? It's, it's not been in Jerusalem, let me give you a hint, Right? Where are the priests and the religious leaders? They're in Jerusalem. If you look at the majority of the book of Matthew, who does Jesus warn the disciples about? The Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees. And by the way, the Pharisees came out of the scribes. They were a subset of the scribes. They were the experts in the law. They were the teachers in the synagogue. The priests were in Jerusalem. Only in Jerusalem. Who is it that turns Jesus over to Pilate? That's the priests, right? Jesus hasn't really been picking on the priests up until he got to Jerusalem two days ago. It's like he walked into Jerusalem and kicked over a hornet's nest. So if you think about this, the plot on the part of the high priest, the Pharisees have been plotting for a while. But here's a little geopolitical context for you. The Pharisees and the scribes and the priests and the Sadducees, by the way, most of the Sadducees were of the priestly line. They ministered in the temple itself. Okay, so the two groups that Jesus preached against, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes and the priests, right? They were enemies. They didn't like each other. Because the, the, the Sadducees, that small subset of the priests, had rejected everything supernatural in Scripture. It was all metaphor. Okay? Not only was it all metaphor, but anything outside of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy was not Scripture. They were good books, profitable for teaching, not Scripture. The Pharisees, all of the Old Testament was Scripture. So there's some conflict there, right? The Pharisees had plotted how to get rid of Jesus. The Pharisees had tried to figure out what to do with him to get him to shut up. 
They tried to trap him. They tried to turn the crowds against him. They tried everything. Here in Jerusalem, the, the priests come together and say, we got to kill this guy. The priests, we need to kill this guy. See, their reaction was not so much of a slow simmer. They, as a matter of fact, they probably didn't have a problem with Jesus teaching against the Pharisees. They're okay with that. And then he shows up on their turf, and he's standing in the temple. He walks into the temple on the first day he's in town, and what does he do? He chases out the money changers and the people that are selling the animals for sacrifice because they were hindering people's worship. What are the priests there for? Help people's worship. And what were the priests doing? Well, the money lenders and or the money changers and the, the people selling animals were, were doing their thing. <laughs> Waiting for a prophet. <laughs> With an F, not a PH. Right? So Jesus is now talking against them, and he is really... Really, he's made them angry, and so they react. Uh, this this is a knee-jerk reaction of a group that feels threatened. Um, I, I, I just I had to put this down. Sunday morning, the people are proclaiming Jesus as a prophet. They're crying out for him to deliver them because the priests ain't doing it. Uh, which, why did, why did? They tell Jesus to get the people to shut up. Do you know? Go go flip flip over to chapter 21 for just a minute. Matthew 21. Right at the beginning. Uh, let's see here. Uh, chapter 21, verse 9. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. What does the word Hosanna mean? Hmm? Mm-mm. Deliver us. It means deliver us. What are they wanting to be delivered from? Rome. Okay. Um, let's see here. Hosanna, deliver us. To the son of David. Who is the son of David supposed to be according to Jewish prophecy? The coming king. Okay? So all of Jerusalem, the capital city where the Roman governor lives, is now gathered on the Via de la Rosa, shouting out, the son of David has come to kick Rome out of town. Why do you think the priest would come to Jesus and say, hey... Tell them to shut up. Yeah. Cause, yeah, because what do the Romans do when say a, a revolt against their ruler? They come in with a military force and they put that revolt down. And up to this point, Rome had been very kind-hearted and it was their tradition when they took over a country, they left the religious establishment in place. It didn't matter what the country was. It doesn't matter if you worship this God, that God, or the other God. It doesn't matter if you don't worship any gods. We'll just incorporate that into your being part of Rome. But the son of David is a religious figure. And he's going to be the delivering king. And the people are saying, he's here. And the priests are thinking, we're in trouble. 
Because the Romans are going to come in and clean the temple out and say, you know what? We're done with this Jewish stuff. It's already happened before. Antiochus did that back at the time of the Maccabees when the, the celebration of Hanukkah started back in uh, the one forty one fifty ish B.C. I can't remember the exact years. So the priests are scared. That's why they told Jesus, get people to shut up. Okay? Sunday afternoon, Jesus shows up and he kicks the money changers, people selling the pigeons and the sheep out of the temple, which is causing a ruckus on the part of the crowd. Because where are the workers going to change out their Roman currency for the temple currency? And how come the priests haven't done this? How come the priests are letting these people rip us off in the temple? Monday morning, he comes to the temple and he starts pronouncing curses on the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And he's letting everybody have it. 24 hours after he's, he's drawn the attention of Rome, he walks into the temple with a verbal shotgun and starts blasting everybody. Then Monday afternoon, at the end of chapter 23... Right before he leaves the temple, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. By the way, Jerusalem is home to the temple. The temple is home to the priests. Why would they think that Jesus is a threat? So in in chapter 26, when Matthew says, then the chief priests and the elders, it's not that he's saying after Jesus told the disciples that there's only two days left that he has to teach them. I think that then is at the same time. While Jesus was saying all of this stuff, the chief priests had all gotten together at the high priest's house, and they were having a business meeting as to how to get rid of this Jesus guy before the full weight of the Roman military came into Jerusalem and leveled the place. Because that's their concern. The only thing that tempered their plot was pragmatism. Y'all know what pragmatism is, right? Being practical, doing doing things that work, right? Look there at verse 5. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they recognize the fact that everybody likes Jesus. At this point, everybody likes Jesus. So they don't want to cause a riot in the middle of the feast. We'll wait until after the Passover. Now, flip back again, chapter 24, the beginning of chapter 24. So at the end of 23, Jesus leaves the temple, right? Think about Jesus for just a minute you have the temple mount you have the mount of olives there's a valley in between them remember i talked about the place of the 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 olive press gethsemane was in between right so jesus leaves the temple they go down the temple and at some point they go up somewhere on the mount of olives we don't know where but there in chapter 24 verse 3 it tells us that As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Okay? 
So give us a clue. Tell us what's going to happen. Tell us when it's going to happen. Tell us what we need to be on the lookout for. The reason I point this out is because Matthew 26, now flip back to 26. If nothing else, your Bibles are going to get a workout today. All right, these four pages are going to get worn out. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 6, tells us Jesus and the disciples were at Bethany. Where is Bethany? It's about two, uh, two miles from the Mount of Olives. Just getting closer? Okay. So it's two miles from the Mount of Olives. Um, who lived in Bethany? Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And apparently, according to Matthew here, Simon the leper. Now, his name was Simon, and apparently he had a skin disease. That's that's it. I looked and looked and looked and looked. Now, there are some who have identified Simon the leper as Lazarus, that maybe it was a middle name or maybe that was his... Uh, 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 a family name or something to that effect, that may have been what caused him to die before Jesus raised him. Don't know. Um, we don't know anything at all about him other than the fact that he... um, Parallel to this, uh, verse 6 through 13, uh, John's Gospel, chapter 12, one of the few times that John actually carries the same account as one of the other gospel writers. John tells us about this with a little bit of different detail. He tells us that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are eating dinner with Jesus. So we have a picture now that there are at least four people who are sharing dinner with Jesus and the disciples. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Simon, if he's a different person. Okay? Um, John also tells us that Mary is the woman who comes and anoints Jesus. Now, it's interesting. John says that she puts the ointment on his feet. Matthew tells us that she pours the ointment on his head. What does Jesus have to say about it? Verse 11, uh, sorry, verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, okay, she probably didn't just anoint his head. She probably didn't just anoint his probably head to toe, head to feet, this ointment. Um, in uh, Mark chapter 14, we have the same story again. Uh, this is an indication that maybe Mark wrote his first, Matthew copied it. That's possible. In all three accounts... This is a very expensive ointment. It's worth a fortune. And the disciples aren't happy. Now, John tells us that Judas is the chief complainer. Okay? Um, there have been many that Judas was the treasurer for the, was kind of the one who handled the box. And so his complaint would have been because money could have been put to a better use. Right? And then of course, we have the cynical people who say, yeah, his, his complaint was because the money could have been put to a better use, lying in his pocket because he was probably stealing from the till and so on and so forth. Um, 
I'm going to I'm going to jump in here and do something odd. I'm going to defend Judas at this point. Um I I really have a problem with the caricatures of Judas that portray him as an evil, scheming, conniving, underhanded disciple who had infiltrated Jesus's inner circle. Uh, how did the disciples become disciples? Jesus called them, okay? So Judas didn't infiltrate anything. And Jesus has shown time and time and time again for, uh, remember, this is like the last week of his life. So we're talking uh, 156 weeks, give or take. Jesus has been walking with these guys daily, teaching these guys daily. This is the last week of Jesus' life. Judas was not the evil, scheming, wicked. In three years, somebody would have noticed. Right? And Peter's part of the group. In three years, Peter would have said something. Because it's Peter. Right? The guy with no filter between what goes in up here and what comes out here. Nothing is said about Judas until this week. All right? Go back to the parables that Jesus has taught. The parable parable of the sheep and the goats. How does a tear look from wheat? Especially in their immature stage. They're nearly indistinguishable. You can't tell. Would you say that the disciples are in an immature state at this point before Jesus' crucifixion? Yeah. Jesus is still trying to tell them everything about the kingdom that they need to know because he's about to die. And oh, by the way, he's already told them three times. What did they do the first time? They argued. What did they do the last two times? They ignored it. What did they do this time? Verse 2. Jesus said, there's two days till the Passover, and then I'm going to be handed over and crucified. What did they respond with? Crickets. Nothing. There is nothing. Would you say they're mature? No. No, I would not call them mature. At this point, Judas looked like and acted like the rest of the disciples. When he was concerned that that money could have been, uh, that ointment old and given to the poor, you got to remember that one of the chief tenets of the Jewish religion still today is to care for the poor. That is one of their highest commands. Everything about the Jewish law that Moses gave was designed to care for those who weren't able to care for themselves. The, the rule about harvesting in the field. When you harvest the field, what do you do? You leave the corners. Why? So that the widow, the orphan, and the resident foreigner can come in and have food. When you harvest from your orchard, you don't shake the trees bare. You leave some fruit hanging. Why? So that the widow, the orphan, the resident foreigner can come in and have themselves some food. When you make your sacrifices at the temple, when you give your tithe, what did a portion of that tithe go for? The widow, the orphan, and the resident foreigner, the people who didn't have. 
everything about the Jewish faith was focused on taking care of those who cannot. There's no reason to think that Judas was thinking about his own pocket here. Now, maybe he was thinking about his own obedience to, to, to Jewish law, but does that make him any different than the rest of them? No. Fast forward to after Jesus' resurrection, and again we go to Peter, right? Peter in Acts chapter 10, where is he? He's at the house of Simon the Tanner, right? Okay, what's a tanner do? He tans hides, okay? All right, now, where do hides come from? Dead animals, okay? According to Jewish law, being in contact with dead animals makes a person what? Unclean. Peter's sitting on the roof. He's having a nice prayer time. All of a sudden, shows him a vision of this sheet full of unclean animals. And God says, go eat. What does he say? No, I'm a good Jewish boy. I've never done anything to make me unclean. You're sitting on the roof of a house full of dead animals. You've been eating dinner with a tanner who's unclean. Oh, and by the way, one more thing that shows that this wasn't just Judas. <clears throat> Look at twenty, uh, chapter 26, verse 8. What does Matthew say? And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were all thinking this way. We could have used this to feed the poor. That's a noble idea. But Jesus chastised them. Now, it may be that he chastised them because they were thinking that that was somehow going to earn them merit in heaven, and eh, that's a possibility. Um, I don't think so. At least Jesus doesn't teach it that way. Because what Jesus says here is why... Do you give her a hard time? Why are you troubling her? She has done a beautiful thing. She has done a precious thing. She had sacrificed and ministered to Jesus in preparation for his death. She didn't even know it. But it was so significant that what Jesus says in verse 13 should cause you to stop and pay attention. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Think about that for a second. That's, that's important. Jesus just put... Mary's actions in anointing him, not necessarily on par for salvation, but on par for importance with the gospel. Wonder why. A couple of chapters ago, they came to Jesus and they asked him the question, what is the great commandment? Which one of the commandments is the most important? Okay. 
Because, you know, if we can get Jesus to say one is the most important, then he's by definition implying that one of them is less important, and we can get him in trouble with the people. But Jesus says that the great commandment is to love God with all of your being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart being the seat of our will, that's our volition, that's our our uh, choice, our conscious choice to do things. All right? Mind, all of our thought processes, soul, that inner, that w- what makes us a living being, the part that is created in the image of God, and strength. That's pretty much everything else. Our actions, the things that we do. Jesus says, love God with all of that. And then he says, the second great commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. We spend a lot of time focusing on that, and that is critically important here for us, this side of the New Testament, as we interact with people, that we ought to love one another. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? And he says, I give you a command, love one another. That makes it pretty clear that loving people is what we're supposed to be about, right? And that word love... Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a page out of Danny and say that this is a thing that preachers do that we shouldn't. How many have you heard a sermon on the word agape? More than once, right? Because you know the word Jesus used for love is that word agape. Eh, chances are good that Jesus spoke Aramaic, not Greek. He may, he probably did speak Greek but not when he was teaching the disciples because they were all Jewish, right? So he was probably speaking Aramaic, which means he didn't say agape. And to the best of my knowledge, there is not a word in Aramaic that directly translates to agape. Now, that's the word that Matthew wrote down, and we do believe that Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. However, we probably make too big a deal out of that, right? That's one of those preacher things. But I do find it interesting that the word agape is a verb. It's an active word. It is not to describe something we feel. It is something that we do. And in the Greek, the word agape is a sacrificial love. It is a love that gives up something. Seeking the best for a person that we are loving without regard to the personal cost. Uh, the best example of this, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave only son. Okay? And that the, the, the verse, actually, it's better translated, God loved the world in this way. This is how he demonstrated it. He gave up his son for us. So it's that sacrificial picture. Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't have a hard time understanding. Now, whether I put it into practice or not is a different matter. Loving somebody for them in such a way that it gets them the best possible outcome, even at my own personal cost. Because I can see you. And I can see the outcome, 
And I can kind of think about the kind of things that I need to do to bring about that outcome. And I know that I have to weigh the choices and what it's going to cost me and all that. It's easy with a person, right? We're coming up on Christmas. And I've been seeing it all over Facebook. What do you think the person who has everything? Right? Because all the Black Friday deals and I get like 72 emails a day from Best Buy. I don't know why. Maybe because I shop there a lot. But I see this slogan all the time. What do you get? The same word Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sacrificial love. So do whatever it takes for the best possible outcome for God, at no matter the personal cost to yourself. How do we, for God, what is the best possible outcome for God? He's God, right? He's outside of time. He does not change. There is no shadow with, there is no sin within him. There is no added benefit. He owns everything. This is literally the question. What do you do for the guy who has everything? Right? But we're still commanded to sacrificially love God. Now, what is the one thing that we can give God? He's already got us. The one thing we can give God is glory. Is worship. Is that thing that he desires from his creation. You remember when they did chastise Jesus on Palm Sunday and all the people are shouting out? And they said, teacher, tell, your, tell, tell the people to shut up. And Jesus said, look, they're praising God. If I tell them to shut up, even the rocks will cry out. God desired his creation to give him glory. That is thing that we can do is to glorify God. To glorify God, I have to diminish myself. I have to be less to show God to be more. I can't be more. That's that's part of the whole thing that Paul was talking about, that we don't have anything to boast about, because it's all God. I didn't play a part in it. The only thing I did was screw up, so I needed saved. Mary glorified Jesus. She worshipped him. She showed him his great value by taking this, number one, it was an alabaster jar. Alabaster was an extremely precious material, okay? And it was full of an extremely precious ointment. This was probably like the equivalent of life savings for her. This was, this was very, very, very valuable. And I would wager a guess, just thinking about the time, thinking about the context, we have we have Mary, we have Lazarus. Now, either those three are young teenagers or Mary and Martha are probably widows being cared for by their brother, Lazarus. Because a woman in first century Palestine 
by the time she is 14 to 16 years old, probably married off, right? And the only thing that would cause her to be alone in a situation where she lived with her brother and sister be widowhood. It's extremely rare for a woman to not be married. And here we have two women, the Greek words that are used by Matthew to describe them are not the words for teenagers. We have these two women together with their brother. He's probably their younger brother. He's probably only in his 30s because he's a close friend of Jesus's, right? Makes me think that he may even be in the same type of vocation that Jesus was trained in as a carpenter. Mary and Martha were probably older sisters who had been widowed and were not able to have children. That's the other reason they would live with a brother because they didn't have children to care for them. So here you have, now, where would Mary have gotten a very valuable jar of a very valuable ointment? Probably from her husband. Wrap your head around that for a second. This is pure conjecture on my part, but it fits the context. Maybe it was from their father when he passed away. Maybe it was a gift from a friend. The financial value to her. This probably had extreme emotional significance. Now, some people would say, well, she did it out of gratitude to Jesus because he did raise her brother from the dead. Right? Yeah, maybe. But I think, looking at the text, looking what Jesus said, this was an act of worship in the extreme. This is the idea of love God with all you've got. Whether she knew it or not, by anointing Jesus with this, she was preparing his body for burial. Two days. He's going to be turned over to the priests. Two days and he's going to begin to suffer and be beaten and be crucified for a death he didn't deserve. So as I started this yesterday, and I was out on that whole time frame thing, and it, I have to say at least Kira was excited when I shared it with her. She was like, wow, that's awesome. I told Steph I was having a real hard time coming up with an application for this passage because there is just a lot of historical information. There is just a lot of gee whiz context. It's important for that, but but I like to give you guys a, a handle to grab a hold of. How do I how do I make this real in my life? Right. Well, what? alabaster jar of ointment do you have in your life? What do you consider to be that treasure above all treasures? You know, we we spent a lot of time talking about loving our neighbors. We have planned this afternoon. Actually, we planned it last week. And I have to tell you, the cynical part of Bill 
is looking at our congregation this morning and seeing not many more people than what we had last week. Maybe, maybe we need to change our focus just a little bit and get the first commandment right. Do we love God with our whole being? What valuable treasure, valuable by your own standards, are you holding on to instead of giving to glorify God? That's a tough question to ask. Because for every one of us, it's going to be something different. It may be material wealth. Doubt it. <laughs> Stab in the dark. Probably not. Okay? Because if it were, I would like to think we would not be sitting here with long sleeves and jackets on and freezing to death. Somebody would have stepped up and given us money to fix the heater. Right? Or the gas at this point. It's probably not Probably not material wealth. Maybe possessions, it may be a house, it may be a car, maybe a boat. Doubt it. Very high likelihood that it's family. Extremely high likelihood that it's family. How do we give up our family to glorify God? We're still supposed to minister to them. We're still supposed to honor our parents. We're still supposed to, to love our spouse and, and, and all of those things. But it's very possible to do that in such a way that we don't give God the glory he's had. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's notoriety. Maybe it's a position. A ministry. That could even become the thing that you need to sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying I'm doing that. Don't bring start running for the hills. I'm not there yet. Okay? But ask yourself this morning. Ask yourself, what is my alabaster jar? What could I sacrifice for Christ that would make him say that wherever the gospel is preached, that story is going to be told too? That's a tough question. 